0: All right, so we're, today we're going to be somewhat in Jeremiah, but you might remember last week, we started a two-week study of a major theme in Jeremiah, the theme of the king, or as it says on the PowerPoint, the rise and return of the king. This morning, I plan to finish up that study, but as I mentioned last week, the two sermons are quite different. Last week, we were almost entirely in the book of Jeremiah, tracing one big theme in one big book. But this week, my plan is to spend most of our time outside of the book of Jeremiah. So what I want to do is I want us to see today how what Jeremiah said about the king fits into the broader story of the king in the story of scripture. In other words, this sermon is going to be very related to what we've been talking about in our Bible classes the last couple of weeks on what's called biblical theology. If you were not able to make it to the classes, that's okay. Uh, Biblical theology, that, that phrase, is more or less the study of how the story of the Bible builds, connects, and climaxes in Jesus. So we believe that the Bible, though very diverse, is one unified book telling a single story focused on Jesus Christ and God's plan to set the world right in and through Jesus. And today, I want to show us specifically that idea that the whole Bible is unified by tracing one big theme from cover to cover, the theme of the king. But since we are in the middle of this study of Jeremiah, let's start there, okay? I want to begin by reviewing the three main things we saw last week in Jeremiah about the king. Maybe you can remember remember them. Maybe you can't, okay? The first thing that we talked about last week from Jeremiah about the king is that God is king. This is foundational to the whole Bible's view of any human king. It all starts with God alone is the true king. So Jeremiah says, like in Jeremiah 10, "'Who would not fear you, O king of the nations?' The Lord is the true God. He is the living God and the everlasting king. And yet, as you read the Bible, in God's wisdom, he has chosen to accomplish his plan for this world through human kings, especially the kings from David's family. But then this is the second big idea in Jeremiah. It was about David's family. And the idea is that the sons of David are going down in the book of Jeremiah, in his lifetime. Jeremiah announces, kind of pictures David's family like a family tree. And he announces that God is going to chop down the Davidic family tree in Jeremiah's lifetime. We saw this especially in Jeremiah chapter 22 where God pronounces judgment on one son of David after another. It's like God is handing down a death sentence on the Davidic dynasty. We see that we saw that most clearly in God's words about the last living Davidic king. His name was Kaniah. He's often better known as Jehoiakim. And do you remember what God says about him? He, he uses a picture of a ring, of a signet ring, like the one that the king would use to seal things, God says about that king, even if he were my signet ring on my right hand, I would tear it off and throw it away. And then maybe remember the chilling words in Jeremiah 22, verse 30. God says about him, write this man down as childless, for none of his sons will sit on the throne of David again. In Jeremiah's day and in the story of the Bible, That is devastating news. But then there's the third theme in Jeremiah about the king. And the third theme was that out of the ashes, a new and better son of David would rise. Long after David's family tree had been chopped down to the ground, God would cause one more righteous branch to rise for David. This new son of David would come and he would reign in the land and bring righteousness to the people. God has guaranteed it. He would not change his mind. Those were the three themes that we saw in the book of Jeremiah last week. But what I want to do today is I want to say, okay, those ideas, how do they fit into the whole Bible's story about the king? So I want to focus today on the story of the king and the story of Scripture. So I'm going to go back in your mind, and I want you to go back in your Bible to the book of Genesis. Okay, we're going to start in the first book of the Bible. Where do you think the idea of a king is first mentioned in the Bible? We read some text today that had a lot to say about kings already. But somewhere in the Bible, that story begins. Where does the Bible start to tell the story of the king? Okay, now, to start with, I think we could probably say that Adam and Eve were kind of like a king and a queen in the garden. Now, they're, they're never called royalty, exactly. Like, Adam's never called a king, for example. But do you remember in Genesis 1, the job description? that God gives Adam and his wife. God says, let them have, you know the word? Dominion. And let them rule. Okay? And that shouldn't be surprising. Because if God is king, and we are made in his image, then part of reflecting God will be to do the kinds of stuff that God does. Like rule. But it's not until later in Genesis that you actually hear of actual human kings. It's in Genesis chapter 14 is where you first hear this. And in fact, they come in a a big bunch. (laughs) Because all of a sudden, you hear the names of 10 kings in that one chapter, in Genesis chapter 14. But the only one that seems to really matter is also the most mysterious. He is a king named Melchizedek, a king who also happens to be a priest of God Most High. But before we're ready, he's gone, and he never shows up again for a really long time. So it's not until you get to Genesis chapter 17 that you come across the first significant passage about the king in the Bible. So Genesis chapter 17, you can look at this. This is the story where God changes the name of Abram to Abraham. And let's go ahead and read. This is in Genesis chapter 17, verse 1. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram, he is a worshiper, Now, at this point in the Bible, Abram is clearly the most important character alive. But now something new happens in his life. God tells him to change his name, but God also says, kings will come from you. That is the first time that we see what I would call the promise of the king. Now, kids, you've got this kind of graphic up there. There will be different words you can fill in if you haven't filled it out completely with pictures already, like my kids did. Okay. Now, as, as the story continues in Genesis, you go from Abraham to the story of Isaac, his son, and then to the story of Jacob, the grandson of Abraham. And I'll just highlight one verse from Jacob's life. This is in Genesis 35, verse 11. You can turn there, you can just listen. Genesis 35, verse 11, God now says to the grandson of Abraham, Jacob, a nation And a company of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. That's like the same thing, okay? The promise is being passed from one generation to another. But so far in the story, as you might have noticed, this is not exactly the promise of a king. This is the promise of kings, like many kings coming. And that is the case until you get to to the text I read for our Old Testament reading. Do you remember it? From Genesis chapter 49. Okay, so you can go there to Genesis 49 or remember back to what I read. Do you remember the scene? Abram has been dead for a long time by this point. Now his grandson, Jacob, is a really old man and he gathers his 12 sons Around him, basically to tell them what God will do with them in the latter days. Okay, now do you remember the sons? He goes to Jacob, or he goes to Reuben, Levi, Simeon, but it's when he comes to his fourth son, Judah, that he says something that really moves the story forward. What does he say to Judah? This is in Genesis forty-nine, verse eight. So Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Now, you might think in the story of Genesis, from the very beginning, we're looking for someone who can crush people's heads. <laughs> okay? and, and Judah, your hand is going to be on the neck of your enemies, and your father's sons will bow down before you. And he starts to describe Judah. Judah's a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up, He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? And then you get the talk of the king. The scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him and to him will be the obedience of the peoples. So it's here in that prophecy that we find that Judah will become the leader of God's people. He's pictured as a lion, ready to pounce, ready to fight, ready to conquer. Who dares rouse him, Jacob says. But what do you see in verse 10? The scepter, like the king's staff, <clears throat> will not depart from Judah. And this will, he will continue to have kings until the day when the, when the obedience of the peoples comes to his descendant. Okay, this isn't just saying, I think in this text, that kings will come from Judah, that that's true. This is a prophecy that one day, one great king will come from Judah, a king who will deserve and get the obedience of the nations. And this gives us a taste of the promise of the king in the early parts of the Bible. But as with pretty much everything in the Bible and in life, things don't go nearly as smoothly as you would hope. So even here on the PowerPoint, you might see we have the word promise, and then it's kind of like this steady climb. Okay, That's because you cannot show every up and down. It was no steady climb after this promise was made in the Bible. Because do you remember what happens right after this in the story? Jacob talks with his sons, and where are they when that happens? (coughs) They're actually down in Egypt. And what happens in Egypt right after this? The Egyptians enslave all of that family. For how long? For like 400 years down in Egypt. Like that is a downer in the story. But then what happens? God rescues his people out of Egypt with his mighty outstretched arm. And that's like a really high point, a good point in the story. But then what happens? Those same people that God rescues rebel against him and end up dying in the wilderness for 40 years. And that's a downer in the story. But then what happens? The new generation comes, and they actually obey. And they go into the promised land, and they conquer it, and that's great. But then, the next generations forget God and do horrible stuff for the next couple hundred years. That is a downer in the story. That is the book of Judges, which is what Phil preaches on. He preaches on the really sad, Actually, Jeremiah is pretty sad, too. We're kind of in the sad parts of the Bible. But this is the way that it goes in the Bible. It's never a you know, smooth sailing in the Bible. It's, the story is full of ups and downs, but the promise remains. A king is coming. And by the end of the book of Judges, a couple of things have happened in the story. One is by the end of Judges, there's now a really big group of people who need a really good king. And two, they now live in a land where that king could come and reign if he would just show up. But the people are an absolute mess. Perhaps you remember hearing this in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. So on the PowerPoint, even though it's kind of a steady climb. After the word promise, you can imagine it's a lot of ups and downs. In fact, by the end of Judges, it's way down. But then comes what book? What book is right after Judges? The Book of Ruth. And what do we learn from Ruth? We learn about the two big Ds, right, from Ruth. What are they? Dating and David, right? Okay, now, not so much about dating. Okay, I don't think Ruth is a great guide to date, but it is a good love story. But where does the book of Ruth actually lead in the end? Because people know the love story part of Ruth, but where does it lead? It leads to a man named David. Because it turns out that Ruth marries a man named Boaz, who is from the tribe of Judah. It turns out that Ruth becomes the mother of a man named Obed, the grandmother of a man named Jesse, and the great-grandmother of a man named David. And so by the end of Judges, we're longing for a king. And by the end of Ruth, we're longing to know who David is. And when we enter into the next book of the Bible, 1 Samuel, one of the first things we hear is a woman singing. It's kind of, I think, meant to be like background music that's played throughout the story of Samuel and Kings. I'm talking about the song of a lady named Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2. And do you know how her song ends? This is the last verse of her song. 1 Samuel 2, verse 10. She sings, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king." and he will exalt the horn of his Messiah. First time that's used about the king. The king is coming. David is coming. She sings about the king coming. But before you get to David, you find this other king named Saul. Now Saul was definitely what the people wanted. And he definitely looked like a king. But he was definitely not the kind of king that God wanted. There's this children's book that I like to read with my kids by Kevin DeYoung. This is like his whole description of Saul. It says, Saul was pretty impressive height-wise and pretty disappointing in every other way. So God determined to tear the kingdom away from Saul and give it to someone better than Saul. That's what it says in the text. So soon after that, I think in the very next chapter, the prophet Samuel is making his way down to a little town called Bethlehem to find somebody from the tribe of Judah named Jesse and to look for one of his sons to anoint as the next king. After doing some searching, he finds a son named David and he anoints him to be the next king of Israel. The next thing you know in the very next chapter, that young man David is out on a battlefield, one-on-one against a giant Named Goliath, And by the end of that story, he's holding up Goliath's head. It wouldn't be long before Saul had fallen and David had risen to be God's new king. And that's what I would call the rise of the king in the story. So you have the promise of the king, and then with David, you have the rise of the king. <clears throat> and that leads us to the high point in the Old Testament story which is the text I read last week, 2 Samuel chapter 7, when God promises to David that his sons will sit on on the throne forever. He will have a son who will rule over an eternal kingdom. That is the best it ever gets in the Old Testament. But it's not just that. God also promises that he will start to treat David's sons like his own sons. God says, I will be to him a father, and he will be to me a son. Okay, but that mountaintop moment would not last for long. Because within five chapters of David being told this, do you know what David will do? Within five chapters, David, the man after God's own heart, would covet, commit adultery, murder, Hide. It is one of the worst and lowest points in the story of the Bible. And even though David repented truly with true humility and God truly forgave him, the consequences of what he did would haunt him the rest of his life. But the fall of his dynasty would not happen right away. David's son Solomon would come to the throne, just like God had promised. And Solomon was a great king in the beginning. His father loved him. God loved him. Solomon was given every blessing, every privilege, every opportunity. And for a while, he ruled well. But throughout his life, what was the problem with Solomon? He began to take more and more wives, like lots of them, like hundreds of them, And those wives loved and worshiped other gods. And over time, as he got older, he grew further and further away from the God of his youth. The wisest of kings fell like a fool. He ended his life as an idolater. And from then on in the story, it was all downhill. The kingdom that David had built split apart. Ten northern tribes going up into the north uh, called Israel. Not even one of their kings would honor the Lord. 250 years later, they would be done. The southern two tribes, known as Judah, where David's family was, they would last longer. One son after another would come from David's family to sit on the throne. Some were good. Many were bad. But in the end, during the ministry of Jeremiah the prophet, God would cast off the Davidic king. God would say, even if the king were my own signet ring, I would tear it off and throw it away. The kingdom was doomed. God determined in Jeremiah's life to chop down the Davidic family tree. The last living king, Keniah, would be sent away to Babylon never to return, and not one of his sons would sit on the throne of David. That's where we were last week, and that is what I would call the fall of the king. But just as we saw even today, one chapter later in Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 23, God's promising again a future son of David. That's what we saw. One more righteous branch will spring up for David. A king will come who will rule well and lead God's sheep back to God. And that is what I would call the promise of the king. (laughs) This would be one of the key messages of Jeremiah and the prophets. A better king was coming, one who would rule, not just to the borders of Israel though, but to the ends of the earth. Well, a lot of time would go by after that. In fact, centuries would go by after Jeremiah's prophecy with very few signs that anything like this would happen. But if you remember what Jeremiah was told, God always watches over his word to do it. And finally, one day, in the little town of Bethlehem, God sent the king. And one of the ways that God signaled that was doing something in the heavens. Do you remember that? We celebrate this every Christmas. God put a star in the heavens to signal to a few wise watching men from the east that the king had come. That's why they left the east and traveled all the way over to Jerusalem. And that's why when they get to King Herod in Jerusalem in the Gospel of Matthew, what do they ask? Where is he who is born king of the Jews? We saw his star. And that is what I would call the arrival of the king. Well, when that little Jewish boy Jesus grew up into an adult man, he went out into Israel and he began to announce what? What was his message? He would say, repent because the kingdom is near. See, the kingdom is near because the king has arrived. And in the four gospels, we get four stories of the life of the king. And what did he do? The king healed and he served. He taught and he loved. He would rebuke hypocrisy. He would warn of judgment. He would call for repentance. He preached some of the hardest messages ever preached. But always, he would welcome with open arms anybody who would listen and respond in humility, no matter what they had done in their past. The king showed us what it was like to love and to live as a true human being. This would all lead to the climactic week of his life. As you fast forward, as he enters the final week of his life, Jesus decides intentionally to enter the city of David riding on what? On a donkey. Why did he do that? He did that to fulfill the words of the prophet Zechariah. Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, what? Your king is coming. Riding on a donkey, the audience knew that day exactly what he was doing. Because what did they cry out? Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. The king had arrived, and it seemed like the people were ready to meet him. But the truth is, they were not ready. The triumphal entry was, after all, only about five days before they handed him over the Roman governor to kill him. We read about this earlier in our New Testament reading from John chapter 19. And did you hear this story that Alex is reading? In John 18 and 19. John 18, Pilate keeps wanting to know from Jesus, are you the king or aren't you the king? And what does Jesus say? He says nothing or you said so. Things like that. Shortly after that, Pilate Ask the people, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And what did they say? Not this man, give us Barabbas. Instead, they cry out, we'd rather have Barabbas the murderer than Jesus the king. And that is what I would call the rejection of the king. Before long, the Roman soldiers would be crowning him as king, clothing him, as king. All right, but they crown him with a crown of thorns. They clothe him in a purple robe. And they begin to come up to him saying, Hail, king of the Jews. They hit him. They spit on him. They beat him. Pilate then brings Jesus out in front of the crowd while he's wearing the crown and the purple robe. And he says to the crowd, Behold the man. Just a short while later, as he decides to send Jesus to the cross, Pilate then puts Jesus forward and says, Behold the king. They crucify him in the middle of two criminals. But over his head, they write a very specific inscription in three languages. The king of the Jews. This is the lowest point in the story of the Bible. It is the most shameful moment in history. The promised king is disgraced and he bears indescribable shame. And yet, in a strange way, to those of us who love him, we see in the cross the beauty of our king. Because we remember what he said about how he was the good shepherd. We remember how he said he would lay down his life for the sheep, and we see in the cross that he meant what he said. So when you think about the cross and the king, you see the king in his shame, and you see the king in his beauty. But even a shameful death, would not be the end of this king. Not even death could defeat him. Three days later, on Easter Sunday, God raised the king from the dead. That is what we call the resurrection of the king. And that confirms many things about him. One is that Jesus is who he claimed to be. He is the king. And two, he did what he claimed he could do. The king paid the debts of his servants for his servants. Jesus paid the price of our sins through his death. The resurrection of Jesus is God's confirmation to us all that he is the king. But the story of the king does not stop even at the resurrection in the Bible because it goes on after that. After 40 days of teaching his disciples about the kingdom, what did Jesus do? The king ascended into heaven, and what did he do on the other side of the clouds? He sat down at the right hand of his father, and that is what I would call the enthronement of the king. As it says all over the Bible, in the most quoted verse in the Bible, the Lord said to our Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And from that day on, Jesus has been seated as king, reigning, building his church, sustaining his people, and calling in more sheep into the fold. But he's not only reigning from that seat. He is also waiting. He is waiting for the day when his father tells him the time has come. It's time to return. And that is where we find ourselves in the story today, waiting for what I would call the return of the king. See, we live in a day when our Lord Jesus has already been installed as Lord of the world. And yet we wait for and we long for the return of the king. And this is where the story of the Bible goes with the king. It is told from cover to cover, from Genesis to the book of Revelation. And that's where I want to end today. I want you to see just two passages in Revelation that give us the end of the story of the king. One is in the first chapter of Revelation. Revelation chapter 1, <clears throat> we'll pick up in verse 4. Revelation chapter 1, verse 4. This is from John, Jesus' disciple. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. Jesus is already reigning, and someday soon he is returning. And I want you to see this in Revelation chapter 19, our last text for today. Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Revelation 19, verse 11. John describes to us what he sees. Revelation 19, 11. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine and white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He'll tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And on his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Kings. Of lords. One day the heavens will open and the king will come, and he's coming both to judge and to save. Are you ready for the return of the king? Do you long for the return of the king? I hope you've been able to see over two weeks not only what Jeremiah has to say about the king, but also how what he says fits into the bigger story of the king and the story of Scripture. At the same time, my hope is that we would not leave simply with more knowledge. Now, it is better to have more knowledge about the king than less knowledge. But mere knowledge of him is never enough. So instead, I would hope that we leave like this. One, claiming Jesus as your own king. Is he or isn't he your king? Two, I hope we would leave with greater love for our king. Have you seen the king in his beauty? Do you love him? Three, I hope we would leave saying yes to the songwriters' words who wrote, rejoice, the Lord is king. No matter what happens in our lives this week, there's been a lot of unexpected things that's happened in our church family the last week. We don't know what will happen the next week. But you can rejoice, the Lord is king, and that will never change. And then lastly, I hope we leave saying what John said to Jesus at the end of the Bible. Jesus told John, I am coming soon. And John told Jesus, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Are we ready for the return of the king? And do we long for his return? Let's pray. Father, would you please take this story, Lord, this is your story. This is the story of the king in the Bible. Or would you take it and would you just catch us up in it? Help us to find our Identity and purpose in this story. Help us to see Jesus more clearly. To see him in all of his beauty. To remember that he is today reigning from your right hand. And to remember that he is soon returning. And we say today with John, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would come soon and make all things right but in the meantime as we wait i pray that you would help us to serve to that we might be found before you on that day as good and faithful servants we pray this in jesus name amen